0: Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7 is where we're going to be. And, you know, whenever, whenever this is the last Sunday in our legacy planning series, and I'm always a little sad when we're done with this series because it's kind of like a book you're done reading, you just put it on the shelf, and it's just There. And uh, I hope if you've missed any of these sermons in the past few couple months, go back and listen to them. I think the things that God has been teaching me over this series, and, and again, my, my kids are almost all out of the house, so I, I'm, at a, I'm at a unique stage in life. And, and uh, no matter where you are, whether you are an empty nester, whether you've got grandkids, whether you've got small ones, whether you're a young couple that's just thinking about having children, all of us have, a, have an opportunity and have a, a, a calling to impact the next generation, whether it's the next generation of parents, the next generation of children, uh, whatever it may be. God's calling us to this to this mission. And so, um, I, you know, this is the the final week. We're in, it, again, this is a one long sermon. Deuteronomy is one long sermon, and we're going to stop right here. We could keep going, but there's other things that we're going to be teaching on. But but how I want to end our series today. Is to remind us where we've been and to tie up some things, and then I I have some—I have a really big announcement at the end of this service to talk about why this is such a priority for us as a church. Um, If you you remember, looking at this at the sermon series, we've been going over these four words that that has been repeated throughout this text. Again, Moses is at the precipice of the promised land, with the people of God, the nation of Israel. They have been, you know, through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses has helped deliver them with God's help through, you know, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea. And so they have been through so many things. And Moses is now, is about to send them off, and he's telling them, you have the opportunity to be successful. One of the things that we, we talked about, a lot of different wording that Moses was using was wording that reflected back to the Garden of Eden. That Moses was saying, this is a brand new start. This is a brand new opportunity for you. And no matter what has been going on in your family's life or in your life personally, one of the things that God is always telling us is, you can have a fresh start. You can do this over again. Listen, there's a lot of things I wish I could go back and do over again as a dad. And one of the things that, I think it's why God gives you grandkids. Amen? Because you're able to kind of be like, I kind of, right when my kids are leaving the house, my, my wife and I are like, we kind of get how to parent now. And they're just about to leave. And, and so, so, but what I want you to know is there's always, there's always opportunities for God to redeem something. And no matter what has been the history of this nation, he's saying, you're getting a fresh start in this land with my help. You can succeed and you have choices before you. And these words that we've been talking about that Moses has been saying over and over again is, hear, hear, O Israel, I want you to hear God's voice. I want you to hear his word. The second word is love. I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. I want you to love God. I want you to understand how much he loves you. And then I want you to obey. I want you to keep his commandments over and over and over again. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, he is telling them, you've got to keep the commandments. You've got to keep the commandments. And then the last word is teach. Once you are doing that, teach it to the next generation. And he's doing this because every generation, every person, Every family has this choice. Just like you do. You have a choice with your family. You have a choice with your with your greater family with the with the impact in the life and the knowledge and the wisdom that you have with God to impact that next generation. Are we going to do it? And so, one of the things I want us to do is just review a couple ideas that we've been going over the last 8 weeks this idea of legacy. We started at the very beginning. The first word we shared with you was this word vision. In the very beginning of, of, of chapter six, God was like, I'm going to give you this land. I want you to follow me. I want you to obey me because of the vision that I have for this nation. And so if your vision is not aligned with God's vision, you're going to get something very different. And so God's inviting us to have the, a vision for our families the way that God has for us. The second word is Authenticity. The idea that when he's with the instructions of I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. The the whole idea is if you're going to pass on your faith, it's got to be real. It's got to be real in you. You can't be just the type of parent or grandparent or influencer that says, hey, do what I say, but don't do what I do. You've got to have the authentic faith to lead others in faith. The third word is intentionality. And Pastor Dan, when he was preaching, did an amazing job in his, in his sermons is talking about the intentionality that we need to be having as, as parents, grandparents, and influencers to say, I have a plan and I'm going to be intentional with the people around me to influence them. And so that's the third word. The last word that we're going to be talking about today, and this is the last essential ingredient. Now, now my wife... When we first got married, we're about to celebrate 25 years together, and uh, when we first got married, uh, my wife knew how to make two things, spaghetti and sandwich smashers. It was like this sandwich machine, you put bread in, you put sauce and cheese, and you smash it. And so like, for the first year of our marriage, it was like, what's for dinner, honey? Spaghetti. You know. But now, my wife, 25 years later, she is an amazing cook. And one of the things that she, she has learned over the years is how to how, have all these different flavors. you got to have the salty and the sweet and the umami. I don't even know what umami is, but people talk about umami flavor, right? And you got to have all these different flavors working together in a dish to make this dish really dynamic. And, you know, she'll say, try this. And I'm like, this is amazing. What is this? And, she, you know, she's saying, talking about how she makes it. But you got to have all these flavor profiles to really make a really, really good dish. And the whole idea is these ingredients of, of vision and authenticity and intentionality are really important. But the last one is this, identity. Identity. You've got to make sure that you are doing, the, the, the living out is, this is who I am. This is about, that my identity is found, not just in my last name. All of us have a, this idea of our last names carrying with us an identity. And there's, there's a limited scope of that but how much more the identity that we have in Christ. And that's exactly what Moses is going to be talking about today, this idea of identity. And and as as the passage was read, I want to read for you again verses 6, verse 6 and 7. okay, Because because God, God tells his people, you are my people. And he uses a word to describe their identity. Okay, look what it says in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Right there, underline, circle that word, holy. Because that word right there describes the identity of what we need to have in God. It says the Lord ha- your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth it was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you or chose you for you are the fewest of all peoples but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's saying, I want you to be my special people to reflect who I am to the world. So this idea of holiness is something that's really important for us. It's really important to God. It's important to the people of God. But here's the question I want to ask you this morning, just to start off this whole sermon, all right? How many of you, all right, and this is, don't you have to raise your hand, How many of you thought this week about your own personal holiness? Like, okay, how am I doing at my holiness this week? It's not something we sometimes think about. We don't think about the word holy. Now, we know the word holy. We have this idea of holiness. We use the word holiness in reference to religious people, holy men. These are people that really take God or their religion seriously. But God is saying, I want you to be holy for me. And I believe this: that so many of us we don't really understand this word holy. And so, and so, what I want us to do is, I want us to take a, an, a take a step back and say, okay, what is our understanding of holiness? How does God describe holiness? Because I believe we have a holiness problem today. We have a holiness problem. And the reason why we have this problem is because I believe, first and foremost, that there's a lot of people that call themselves followers of Jesus that are not living distinct lives that make them look like they're followers of Jesus. That's a problem. That there's a lot of people that say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I I go to church. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. But their lives are not holy and reflect that they are distinct people known by their identity in Christ Christ. That's problem number one. The second problem is this, that you might have this idea of holiness and yeah, I want to live a holy life. You might even have a desire to live a holy life. But the problem is most of us as followers of God have got a very skewed view of holiness. I grew up in a a church culture that taught holiness in this way. There There is a high standard that God has for his people and that is absolutely true. But it was a high standard that was basically guilt tripping you saying, if you don't live by this standard, then God, listen, God is really mad at you. And so here's, I've used this a lot in, in the way I've talked about how I grew up in my, in my own church tradition, my own kind of legalistic environment. But it was like this, they taught me that God loved me. He loved me enough to die on the cross for my sins. But, you, but the way that they would talk about God is, I didn't think God liked me. No I knew God loved me, but I didn't think he liked me. And when you when you had the sense of of like, I've got I've got to perform so that God likes me, then you will have this guilt trip holiness. And that is that is a, as much a problem in dealing with holiness as people who just compromise their lives and don't care about holiness. This is a twofold problem within our churches today that we have to address. And so the main idea I want to leave you with this morning is this. Number one, main idea, that there is no legacy without holiness. If you want to have a legacy of faith and faithfulness to God, then it requires holiness. It requires us to be a distinct people that are saying, listen, I want to be known as a follower of God. If you allow your life to look like the world, if you refuse to have the standards of God in your life, then you're going to miss out. Then Your your faith will probably be a one-generation faith. That will, that's probably what will happen, the chances of that. But if you are yourself authentic, if you yourself take on this identity of holiness, being set apart for God, by God, and live out by those, that standard, then the chances of you passing on in the legacy of faith are so much higher. And so holiness is, the, the, so the first thing I want to talk to you today about is the essence of holiness, the essence of holiness. We have a skewed view of holiness. Holiness has two components. Holiness has the idea to do with that we are set apart from, from the world by God for God, that we are distinct from all the rest of the people. That's what holiness means, to be set apart. But it also has this idea of there's, a, there's an ultimate standard of purity that God expects for his people. So it's twofold, that we are identified, we're set apart, but we also have this high standard. And if you, a lot of times we look at one without the other, but you've got to put those two together to really understand what holiness means. But I want you to understand that, that when, when Moses is saying, you are a holy people set apart by God, look at the next sentence that he says. Look at verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. That is a word right there that is so unique in, in the Old Testament. It's only mentioned a few times. But what it's saying is God is saying, you are special to me. I love you. Notice that the context of holiness, when he's calling the people to be holy, it is built upon the framework and the foundation of God being the one who's activated the relationship with these people. God has been the activator. He's been the mover. He's been the one desiring and calling these people and saying, listen, I want you. You are my treasured possession out of all the people in the world and because i love you and because i wanted you and because you're my special people i want you to live like this that word treasured possession is this idea that it's some it's a it's a possession that's owned that is that is greater than anything else when i was a kid growing up i i lived in uh i lived in northern virginia for about six years my dad was a pastor out right in the suburb outside of washington dc and uh we lived in this you know, nice little suburban neighborhood in a little town called Sterling, Virginia. And I had a friend across the street named Jonathan Bailey. And Jonathan Bailey's dad had an orange, a bright orange Corvette. And I, I don't know what year it was. I think it was probably some, it was, this was around 1980. So it was, it was a late 70s version of, of the Corvette. And, and I don't remember Jonathan's dad's name, but I remember every Saturday, Jonathan's dad would uncover his Corvette. He had this gray cover. He would uncover his Corvette. He would wash his car. He would wax the Corvette. And he would get it out and drive it back and forth up and down the road and park it and put the cover back on. Every single week. He would take the cover off, wash the, I mean, dude, it's been covered since the last time you drove it. I'm, I'm like a five-year-old watching this guy, and, and, and this, here's the thing. This Corvette was Jonathan's dad's treasured possession. It, I mean, he took care of that car better than anything else in his life. And that's, what, that's the picture I want you to have of how God views you when he calls you into a relationship with him. You see, our understanding of holiness gets so skewed when we try to understand holiness and live out holiness, apart from understanding the foundation of love and treasured that God has for us. See, God sees in us, when he says, you are to be my holy people, he sees in us and says, this is who I want you to be. I have a vision for the way of of the type of person that you can be. I have a high standard for you. God is not against high standards. God's standard is ultimate. In fact, when he gives these laws in the Old Testament... And in, in, in earlier on in the story, it is to say, this is the high standard I want you to live by because not only will you enjoy life more, not only will you have more blessing in your life, but I want you to, this is my character, my laws, my standards, my righteousness is a reflection of who I am. And if you're gonna be known by me, I want you to reflect this. You see, if we divorce the relationship and the love and the desire that God has for us, to, from the high standards that, that God has for us, we will get the whole holy... It, here, there's a couple outcomes that will happen for, for, for us. Number one, if we divorce those two things, and we try to achieve holiness, we will either get really proud because we will try to attain that standard, and we'll almost hit it. And we'll think that we are better than everyone else. That's one outcome. The other outcome is exhaustion. Because you look at this high standard of holiness and you just feel like, man, I just can't do it. I keep struggling, I keep failing, I keep falling. The standard is so high and you keep pursuing and striving and striving to live this holy life and because you can't do it, you're just exhausted spiritually because you can't do it. None of us can. And the last outcome is rebellion. You hear the standards and you you see the standards that are there and because you don't like those standards, you're like, I'm going to do my own thing. And if you try to live a holy life apart from God's love and his relationship with you, you will fall and fail and it will be a harsh life for you. God is is framing this, this call to be holy, to be set apart, to live differently than the world. But he's framing it in this idea of, I love you. I've chosen you. And I didn't choose you because you were so great. In fact, look what he says in verse seven. It was not because you were, you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of the people. God is saying, I chose you because I understand how much you need me. That's how much I chose you. You know, years ago when we were looking for a, a, a dog um, for our family, my daughter, you know, I made a deal with my daughter. They said, if you stop sucking your thumb, I'll buy you a dog. And it was, a, you know, just done. So then we were we went to the we, so then I had to find a dog for her and, and and it's just insane how much how expensive dogs are. I mean, it is insane. And I, so I'm like we're going to the pound. So we looked at the pound and when you go to the pound, it's not it's not the best. It's not the cream of the crop people, right? When you go to the pound, like there's dogs walking in circles. I mean, there there's there's, there's I mean, they just it's not a good picture. And as, I'm, as we're trying to pick out a dog, I'm looking at all these, I'm like, I don't want any of these in my house. That's not what God did. God went to the nations of the world and said, uh, that's a really messed up nation. I'm taking them. In fact, it says in the New Testament that God does not call very many mighty, many great, but he calls, he calls the weak in the base things of this world. See, when God calls you God calls you to himself, it's not because you were so awesome. It's because he knows how much you need him and what a wreck you would be without him. And the reason God, why God does that is because he knows if he can take the broken, messed up sinner like I am and like you are, and transform us and change us and to reflect his image, he gets more glory. It would have been really easy to to pick out the the biggest, the strongest, the nicest nation and say, I'm going to choose them. It's not what God did. And it's not what God does today. And so if you understand that his call and his standard for you to be holy and to live out a holy life comes from this reflection, it comes from this desire of saying, I want you to be like me because I love you so much because I want you to reflect who I am to everyone else around you. One of the things I've been saying over and over again, God is looking for partners in this world to represent him. And when he calls people to partner with him, and to change them, and to transform their lives, to represent him, we want to make sure that we are doing that, but we're doing it out of love. We're doing it out of love, not out of obligation. Don't divorce holiness, from the relationship of love and the treasured possession that God calls us and invites us into. That's number one. Number two, we have the enemy of holiness. We have the enemy of holiness. I want to skip back up and read verses 1 through 5 here. Okay, So we have this, this fulcrum verse. God says, I want you to be a holy people, but that comes within a context because they're about to enter into a, a land that is, that is where there's other nations, there's other people. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I went to seminary to pronounce all those those words just to let you know seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down all their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Okay, then he says, I want you to be holy. What is God saying here? God is saying that there is an enemy to holiness in this world. We know if, if, if you read the scriptures, the story of the Bible, there's three main enemies that God has or that we have as the people of God. And that is this, the world is out there. The world system is the enemy. We have our own flesh, our own sinful flesh. That is the enemy that works against the, the will of God. And then we have the devil. We have the spiritual forces of darkness. The world, the flesh, and the devil are the three enemies that God has and, and that we have as the people of God. And so what God is saying in this, in this moment, when the people that, that are, you know, they're, they're former slaves, and he's saying, I'm going to give you this promised land. Now, why is this so important? He mentions this in verse 8, that this is a land promised to you. Now, 400 years prior, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is standing in the promised land, and God calls him out, and he shows him the stars in the sky. He's like, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have as many descendants on this earth as are stars in the sky, and I'm going to give you this land and your descendants' land, but it's going to be after 400 years. And then I'm going to bring them back here. I'm going to give them this land. And so this is the fulfillment of that promise, that covenant promise that God gave Abraham. But here's the problem. There's people in that land. And so so you have the, this, this, the people of God, they're going to have to come in and they're going to have to drive out and destroy the people are in this, that are in the land. Now, there's something when, when as, a, as a follower of God, as a Christian and someone who believes that the Bible is true and real, and that this is an actual rec- rec- record of human history, there are, this issue in the Bible has caused people, uh, people outside the church, and even people who call themselves Christians, a lot of angst. Because this is an issue that we, we sometimes wonder, like, what do you mean God says, like, kill them? Like, kill all of them? And, and so this is just let's, let's be honest that this is sometimes as when you're reading the Bible when you're reading these things and especially when you're reading about the conquest when God says I want you to kill men women and children oh that's what I want you to do in this in these certain cities some of us are like hmm have you ever wondered like God why why are you wanting to, to do that in fact is that isn't that a contradiction of Jesus when when Jesus is like hey I want you to love your enemies so why is God saying to do this and, and I'm, I'm not going to get into the details of this because it is, this is a huge apologetic issue. In fact, a lot of people who are not Christians will get to this part of the Bible or if they don't like the God of the Bible, they'll bring up this passage and say, your God you know, promotes genocide. And you're like, oh, you're stupid. You know, <laughs> We don't know how to answer. There are attacks against our faith. And let me just tell you something. There is an answer. There's a really good answer to why God commanded this. One of the things that I did this past week with two of our elders, Andy Barker and Craig Barrett, I recorded two episodes with them that will be released on Life Talks this week on Tuesday and Thursday that you can listen to that describe why, why God doing this was a good and just thing, okay? I don't have a, we spent 40 minutes talking about it, two 20-minute episodes. It would take a lot more time than I, than I have time for this morning, but I just wanted to say this. God's character is not minimized. We don't have to hide this. We don't have to like soften this and be like, oh, I don't, maybe he didn't mean, maybe he didn't really mean this. And maybe he meant something else by this. No, he literally meant I want, there's certain people I want you to kill and there's certain people I want you to drive out. And there is a reason for it. But there's something that we have to remember, there's, there's, and I'm, I'm not going to get into it deeply, but there's two things that we must remember. God's character has been proven over and over to be righteous, to be compassionate, to be kind. In fact, here's what I would say. He tells Abraham in Genesis 15, I'm going to give these people 400 years because their sin has not met the full measure before I judge them. He gave these people 400 years to turn from their wicked ways. Not only that, not only with the long suffering of God is on display here, but when God was about to bring judgment on another city, and another group of people in Genesis 18, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's talking with Abraham about it, and Abraham's like, hey, you know, you're not going to destroy this whole city. What if there's 50 righteous people? And God's like, no, I won't do it for 50. And, and Abraham bargains with God down to 10 people. Would you destroy the city if 10 righteous people are in here? And God says, no, if there are 10 righteous people, I will not destroy the city and the only righteous people that were in the city God rescued out of the city before he destroyed it. What is that a description of? That is a description of God's long suffering, his compassion, his mercy, his salvation, his deliverance, but it's also a display of his justice. Okay? God's character is always on display. And these people that were in these in this area, these were not nice people. God was, was saying, their wickedness, their evil, I've had enough of them. And so one of the things that we, what is the takeaway from us, for us? We need to understand this, that when we ourselves become like the world, when that happens, we will compromise our holiness. When we compromise the standards that God has, when we refuse to drive out the evil in our own hearts, in our own lives, when we, refuse to, when we allow things to, to just fester and live inside of us for years and decades, and we refuse to address the sin in our lives and just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, then we are doing God, we're showing God that we don't really care about him. Remember, holiness is rooted in a relationship. And when we compromise and we do not live by the standards that he has and we allow to to turn our hearts to other false gods and say, I don't care if there's other gods inside my heart. God is saying, no, I want you to get these gods out of here. I want you to destroy them. I want you to cut them down, burn them, get the gods, all these false gods out of your land because you are to be a holy people. I want you to be in this land. And I want you, I want there to be worshipers in this land so that you can be growing strong, grow as a strong and, and, and great nation so that you will attract the world to yourself. But you've got to develop your own holiness first before that happens. I don't want a tainted people to worship me. You can't worship me when when you half of you are worshiping this God and then half of you are worshiping this God. You know, I I shared with you, I grew up in, in the Northern Virginia, and, and so most of my sports teams are. Uh, Washington D.C. sports teams, and I'm a, I was a huge fan of the Washington Redskins growing up, and their glory years of the '80s, three Super Bowls, and and uh, and now they just stink. They're horrible. I've had, I've had 20 years of just wandering in the wilderness myself as a fan, and and when I remember years ago going to the games when I was younger, and you know we had a stadium that was almost all. Redskin fans, and it was awesome. It was so cool. It was one of one of the best fan bases in the entire NFL. And twenty years of losing, you know what that does? It erodes the fan base. And my brothers, you know, my brothers and I were still fans. My my older brother, he has season tickets, so a couple times, or maybe one time a year, I'll go up there, uh, and and I'll go to a game. And now it's like half of the half of the half of the crowd is the other team. And when you go into to watch your team and their home field, you want there to be, I want there to be a pure fan base in the in the stadium. I don't want to hear Eagles fans behind me yelling at me. That's not fun. And and I think the way way I feel about going, like, oh, I gotta put up with all these fans of the other team around me, It, it ruins the experience. And I think God, in a, in a much grander way, says, I, when, when you come to worship me, when, when, you, when you're in the stadium to worship me, right, I don't want there to be, I don't want there to be other fans of other gods in your heart. It's got to be pure, because I will not receive that as true and genuine worship. God is saying, I want a holy people that, that are going to reflect who I am. And I want you to drive this out. He says, I don't want you to, I don't want you to intermarry with him. Now, the, the, the practical applications of this are, 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 can, can be a lot. I don't have the time to get into all of it. But I do think this. One of the major ways that we, we compromise our own standards of holiness and God's holiness is that we conform our behavior to others. When he says, "I don't want you to intermarry," what he's saying is, "I don't want you." Marriage is one; of the, is the greatest union of two people. The purpose of marriage is oneness, and 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 what 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 mar- a married couple should have is they should have uh, physical sexual oneness, they should have emotional oneness, they should have relational oneness, and they should have spiritual oneness. And if you and what he's saying is, if you marry someone else that is not a follower of me. That spiritual oneness will drive a wedge into your life away from me. And so, what he is saying is, I don't want you to conform to others, whether it's friendships, whether it's people around you. We, God wants us to be the people that are not making compromises on our own standards of saying, Well, I know people might not feel comfortable with what I believe. That's garbage. We need to be, if we're going to be people that are known by God, then what we need to be caring about is how God thinks we're living, not what they think of our standards. And again, this is built on a relationship of love. And what we show, what we love more is, I care more about what they think than what God thinks. That's the whole idea when he says, I want you to fear the Lord. That idea of fearing the Lord means I want you to care more about what God thinks about my life than what the people around me think. And that for, for too long, the people of God, that for too long, the generations of Christians in this nation, when we find ourselves in environments and around people that don't believe the same way we do, we always tend to lay down and say, whatever you want. Instead of saying, no, this is what I believe. And you might do that, but I'm not going to go along with you. This is where I'm going to stand, and I will not compromise this standard. God wants us to be like that. Not stop conforming to other standards or others' expectations for your life. And start saying, I'm going to live my life according to God's holiness. That's what we need. The second thing is is we just accommodate Jesus among other gods. Not only do we conform to others, but we just have these other gods in our, in our hearts that say, hey, I'm okay with, with having this idol. I'm okay with having this addiction. I'm okay with having this manageable problem in my life. I, I, I'm going to worship Jesus on Sunday, but Monday through Friday, this is my God. And so we play the game of having many gods just like they did in those days. And God's saying is, I I want Christ and Christ alone to be in the throne room of your heart and have no other gods before me. That is the standard that he has. So we have the essence of holiness built on this desire that God has for us, his choosing of us. And it's built on this relationship of love to reflect the standards of his holiness, of his righteousness, out of the sense of I want to reflect the one who has chosen me as a treasured possession. Then we have the enemy of holiness, which is this compromise that's always working against us. And lastly, we have the example of holiness. We have this example of holiness. I want you to see verses 9, 10, and 11, this declaration of of how Moses concludes this. It says, know therefore that the Lord your God is, is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his covenants to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The idea I want to leave you with is this very beautiful statement when it says the faithful God in verse 9. God is faithful. God is faithful to his people. You know, the story of this, of this sermon for the people of Israel is quite sad. You know, as we've been going through this series, and as we've been studying the sermon, we, we know how the story progresses I read from the very first week that we began this series, I read to you that passage in Judges chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, which says, And there arose a generation that did not know the Lord. It takes one generation to fall, to, to fall asleep at the wheel for the, for the next generation to forget God. And what we see here is that, that the people did intermarry. What we see later on in the story of the Old Testament is that people ended up, they ended up adopting the other gods and the, other, the worship of all these false deities, and they become as corrupted and wicked as the nations that they were supposed to drive out, and that's why God had to send them into captivity to punish them for the sins that they did. And, and the, re, the reason why I call this, idea, this last idea the example of holiness is because when you look at this idea of God being faithful, And that there's a a punishment and a penalty when we are faithless. God knows this was going to be the cycle. We see this cycle over and over again in the Old Testament. Which is why God the Father sent God the Son to do what you and I could not do. Because this standard of, of completely obeying Him, of being holy, set apart, completely to Him, you and I feel over and over and over again. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came so that he knows, he knows our propensity to sin. He knows the, the reality that we are always fighting against what he wants. And so when he sent Jesus to this world, he sent Jesus to fulfill the fullness of his holiness. And that he won and earned salvation. He fulfilled the covenant that God gave to, to Moses to these people. He was the one that says, I take it, I'll take it on. I'll take on the responsibility because these people can't do it. I will. And because of his life, his righteous, holy life, he earned salvation. And when he went to the cross, he took our sinfulness, our unholiness, our sin and our condemnation upon himself. And he paid that penalty so that now we have the opportunity. We don't have, when he says that I will destroy those who hate me, Jesus took on the hate that we have for God in our hearts. He took on our sin and he, he, poured out his wrath on Jesus for us. God fulfilled this. He fulfilled it perfectly through Jesus so that we could then receive his holiness being set apart, that we might have a new identity in Christ Jesus, that we understand who we are in Christ. The New Testament over and over and over again is trying to teach us that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you make him the Lord of your life, when you stop living for yourself and living by your own idols and living in your own way, that God is calling you to to follow him, that he calls you into a new family. He gives you a new identity as as his child, as a co-heir with Christ. And your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are more than a conqueror. There's all of these things that we now enter into when we place our faith in Christ through our identity. And the reality is the standard of holiness never changes. The standard is always there and it still is there. But now what we have now in Christ is we now have the standard being completely fulfilled that now we live out in love what Christ has won for us. Jesus was the one who earned it. And now the call to live out this holy life is the example that Jesus gave for us. So now it's just about living out our identity. I remember as a, as a teenager, um, I, I, Dan and I had recorded a podcast this week about, a lot of, about some family things, and we talked about our first jobs. And I think every teenager, in, every teenager needs to have a really bad job, okay? All right, I got some amens, yes. Uh, if you are a young person in this room or if you're a parent and you have little kids and you're like, you know, I want Johnny to have a great work experience. No, 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 no. Give them some really bad bosses so they understand, because what, you, what young people listen to me, you need to learn character. It's not just about, you know, I've got the best life ever all the time. And so, and so I remember I had this job, and I hated this job that I had, and I wanted to quit the job. And, uh, and I told my, I was there for like a, a week or two weeks. I'm like, I'm going to quit this job. I hate this job. And my dad's like, you're not quitting that job. I'm like, but I hate it. He's like, And I don't get paid that much. And my friend over here gets paid like 25 more cents an hour. And he's like, I don't care. You're going to keep at that job at least for three months. Three months? Yes. Because Rudolphs don't quit. Like, Rudolphs don't quit? Like, the reason I can't quit my job is because my last name? I didn't understand that. And what my dad was trying to teach me was this lesson of, if, if you just do what you feel like doing all the time, you're not, you're not going to build the character that you need in life. And it didn't really have anything to do about my last name. But what he's saying is, for, for my, the kids in my house, we're going to do things the right way. And how much more the name that we bear for Jesus and the decisions that we make, the choices that we make in life, are we doing this? Are we following the example of holiness that God has given to us through Jesus Christ? A few questions, and then we're done. Number one, do you want to be known as distinctly about Jesus to others? Do you want to be known as a Jesus person? Because this whole idea of of, of holiness has to do with us. God saying, I'm setting you apart. I want you, I'm looking for representatives. I'm looking for partners. And I want people to reflect who I am. Is that in your heart? Stop thinking about the standard of holiness. Don't divorce the standard of holiness apart from the relationship of holiness. Number two, are you pursuing holiness through this lens of love? Do you understand how God has loved you? And because now he loves you and you receive the fullness of his love, his call to live a certain way is, is a joy to you. It's a delight to you because of his love for you, because you understand how much he loves you, because you understand how much he has forgiven you, because you understand the blessings, the fullness of the blessings he's given to you through Jesus Christ. And then number three, what are the compromises? What are the compromises that you're making in your life right now that's, that's squelching your own personal holiness? That God is saying, hey, I, this is the standard, and I want you to live by this standard but you keep making the compromises in your life to do your own thing. God wants us to be a holy people for him. Will we do it? Now, as I said, I, had, I, have, a, I have a big announcement at the end of this service, and, and, and here's, here's what it is. You know, As we are finishing up this series on, on legacy planning, one of the things that we talked about is, hey, you need to have this vision, this authenticity, this this intentionality with your family. And as we have been, as, as a leadership team in our church, we've been praying again. We want this church to reflect the heart of God, and, and we have this vision, man. We want to see Lake Norman uh, saturated with the gospel. And, and you know, we've been emphasizing prayer and, and evangelism, and we want to make sure that we are out there and we're representing God and we're partnering with God because we want people to know about Jesus. But one of the things that, that we also know is this, we don't wanna be so focused in on reaching people outside of these walls that many times we forget to reach the people in our own homes. And so one of the things that we have decided to do is to make, make family families and family renewal a major priority in this church. That we have a vision and we wanna be as intentional with you. We don't wanna just preach a sermon and say, okay guys, go ahead and do it. We understand this is vital, that the 85% reality of people growing up in the church and leaving the church has to end. And what we want to do as a church body is do everything we possibly can to reverse that trend in families and in the next generation. And so one of the things that we have decided to do is we've decided to, to bring on a new position of pastor of next generation and family discipleship because we believe this is so important that we don't want, it. we have the kids ministry, we have youth ministry, but what we want to do is develop a holistic discipleship strategy to partner with parents to make sure that you have every resource and opportunity to succeed at God's calling for your life. And not only have we declared that we have, we have this, this position set aside and funded, but over the past few months, we've been having conversations And we believe we found the right person for the job. And we believe that person is Dan Burrell. We believe Dan is that person. As he's been praying through this, as we've been praying through this as a leadership team, I can't think of a better person to lead this church in this new endeavor. Dan has always said, I've got about seven or eight years left before he retires. And he wants the, the last season of his ministry life to pour himself into this reality. To pour himself into the families of this church, to pour himself into this, to figure out what, what can we can do. Can we do everything possible to help moms and dads and the next generation so that they'll be followers of Jesus Christ? We, we're, and, and we don't have all the details planned out yet, but I do know this. What we're going, what this means is we're gonna we're gonna improve our resources to make sure that you, as parents, our grandparents, Where young parents have all the resources that you need to make sure that you can do this job. The second thing that we're going to do is we're going to keep teaching and training a lot of different things that we can do to keep this conversation going because it's bigger than just a sermon series. And lastly, we know that parents need community. Families need community to help sharpen each other and to not feel like they're alone in their pursuit of following God with their families. And so this idea of family renewal, I'm, I'm introducing to you today. I'm going to be sharing a little bit more about it tonight at our church family meeting. And if you want to know kind of the story of how this evolved, come out tonight, I'll share a little bit more about this. But, but this, is a, this will be a major priority for this church moving forward. We're not going to be flipping levers and switches right away. Uh, Dan, Dan is due for a sabbatical. We're going to have to hire someone to replace Dan's, a lot of his executive role Uh, to to backfill him in so he can go away on a sabbatical and spend some time really getting away and developing the strategy and this philosophy, just like he did with missions a number of years ago. But I want you to know this. If you are a parent or a family or a grandparent or even a young person in this room, I want you to know this, that reaching families and helping families and reaching this next generation is going to be one of the major priorities of this church. And we're going to help you succeed in this pursuit.